When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. It's one thing to be squeezing your defence But it's another thing to be doing that at the same time as a war in Ukraine, war in the Middle East, and saying that we would be willing to intervene in the Red Sea if required. Well, it begs the question, are we actually prepared to do that? I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines, the Telegraph's defence, security and foreign affairs podcast. (laughs) Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. I just find bombs and I find dead people and like maybe one day I'll end up like them but it's a really scary thing for me. (laughs) It's Friday, the 5th of January, 2024. In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to foreign correspondent Lizzie Porter who brings us up to date on the war in Gaza. Then, we look south with The Telegraph's defence editor Daniel Sheridan at the tensions rising in the Red Sea as Houthi rebels continue to target a busy shipping lane with missiles and drones. Finally, with our Asia correspondent Nicola Smith, we travel to Taiwan a week ahead of presidential elections in the embattled island nation that could have profound consequences for the country, the region, and the world. Just a quick note to our listeners. We explained way back in October in the very first episode of Battle Lines that our concept for the podcast was to be able to look in detail at conflicts and tensions across the globe. Then... Hamas attacked on the 7th of October, and it became clear where our initial focus needed to be. Now, in the new year, we're adjusting our course slightly to bring in our correspondents, journalists and experts from around the world to give you, our listeners, an understanding of security and defence issues from across the globe. Of course, we will still receive weekly reports from Israel and Gaza, but now our gaze reaches beyond. First, though, let's go to Jerusalem and talk to foreign correspondent Lizzie Porter, who's on the ground. Thank you so much for joining us, Lizzie. Could you start just by talking us through developments on the battlefield over the holiday season and the start of 2024? Thanks for having me on. Israel is continuing its offensive operations in Gaza have moved mainly from the north. So the offensive started through the north and the Israel Defense Forces took control of Gaza City They have been removing tunnels, so blowing up tunnel entrances. Hamas was obviously quite famous for having a very, very extensive tunnel network under the Gaza Strip. Israel has been working to make it harder for Hamas operatives to hide. It's also been moving south. So areas that were previously in the first weeks of the offensive were seen as sort of safer zones. They are now actually the main part of the battlefield. I'm talking about cities like Khan Yunus, which has now become one of the key battle zones. I should also point out that the humanitarian situation is 
continuing to deteriorate in Gaza. Aid deliveries are taking place, but they are not sufficient. People I'm talking to there are saying that there is not enough food to go around. So whether another ceasefire takes place has been a a point of contention. Humanitarian organizations have been pushing for that. But there is also a lot of pressure within Israel to continue fighting and not have another ceasefire until what Israel says are the two main aims of the war, which is to defeat Hamas militarily and release all of the Israeli hostages that remain in Gaza are completed. Just quickly on, the, on that first aim you, you described there, what do we know now of the state of Hamas's fighting force? Uh, how effective have the IDF been? Mm, it's it's difficult to get specific answers, but uh, there are claims. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, said a few days ago that Israel had killed 8,000 Hamas operatives. It's difficult to independently verify that number. Pre-war estimates were that there were around 30,000 Hamas members in the Gaza Strip, and that's of a population of 2.2 million people, just to to put that in context. So uh, the IDF have been reporting daily that they are uncovering rockets and missile launch areas and um, destroying them. And the number of rocket attacks that have been taking place into Israel from Gaza has reduced. It's still taking place, particularly on New Year's Eve. There was a large uh, barrage of rockets that were fired into Israel and Iron Dome repelled most of them, as I understand it. So there are still rocket attacks taking place from Gaza into Israel, but the number has reduced, which would suggest that their fighting capacity has been reduced. But if you look at the numbers, so say we take Netanyahu's claim that 8,000 have been killed, still a lot not been killed. And I guess the other thing to bear in mind is that you might take out Hamas, but the destruction that is going on in Gaza means that people are extremely angry with Israel and and the ideology doesn't go. Hamas was an ideology, it was socially entwined in Gaza. How do you get rid of that? And, And that's a question that I think is going to remain for Israel. Can we talk about one of the more high-profile killings, the assassination of Saleh al-Aruri, which shocked the Middle East? Can you tell us about this story? Who was he? Why was he important? And why did the Israelis want to kill him? Mm, Saleh al-Aruri was the deputy political leader of Hamas. He was also very involved in the movement's military operations. He was commander in the West Bank which is part of the Palestinian territories. He founded operations there and was very, very much involved in them. He was in prison for a long time in Israel because of his links to Hamas for nearly 18 years on and off. And then he was expelled from Israel in 2010. He moved to Syria first and then to Turkey. And then he moved to Lebanon after that. So he was moving around the region a lot and he visited Iran. Iran obviously backs Hamas. He was meeting with President Erdogan of Turkey. He would meet with the Lebanese leader of the Hezbollah group, who are also very, very close to Iran and supported by Iran and have good links with Hamas. So he was kind of a maybe not a mediator, but a a sort of go-between between regional leaders. So, you know, heads of state, but also militant groups in the region. And Israel had warned before this that anyone involved in in Hamas operations would be a target. Israel hasn't confirmed, I should say, that they were the ones who carried out this strike in Beirut on Tuesday night that led to his killing. But US sources and other security sources have said that it was Israel. Also, a drone strike is quite typical if we look at other attacks that have been attributed to Israel. Again, Israel doesn't normally confirm assassinations that its security forces carry out. But if we look at other attacks that have been attributed to Israel of Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, commanders and others involved in the nuclear program, this attack had similar features in that it was a kind of a precision drone strike rather than, for example, a a suicide bombing or something that would be more problematic because it would likely cause more civilian casualties. So the features of it are similar to previous attacks attributed to Israel. So 
He was a key commander in Hamas, a key leader in Hamas. Um, and also at the same time, the attack also killed two commanders in Hamas's military wing, plus a couple of other operatives. So this was a big blow for Hamas. On, on the other hand, I think it's important to remember that these guys are not scared of dying. And, you know, now he's being lauded by the so-called resistance movements and, and other groups that oppose Israel across the region. He's being lauded as a martyr and things will carry on. Like his death does not mean that, you know, Hamas's abilities to fight or plan politically have gone because they plan, there's deputies, there's others. He is not irreplaceable. You mentioned um, in that story that, of course, the strike took place in Beirut, not in Israel, not in Gaza. How does the fact that this assassination, alleged assassination, is on foreign soil, how does that impact the sort of interstate tensions in the region? Yeah, so we shouldn't forget that Lebanon and Israel are already technically conflicting countries still. There have been multiple wars with uh, Hezbollah, which is a Lebanon-based Iran-backed group, and Israel. They are already two countries that do not get on well. And the the fact that it was in Lebanon does raise tensions regionally. People in the region are saying, why is Israel bombing Gaza so extensively when it has shown in this strike in Beirut that it can carry out a precision attack on a Hamas leader? So people are, are feeling that it, it shows the bombing of Gaza is, is, is more extensive than it um, perhaps should be. It also shows the kind of regional nature of these groups and that they they claim to operate independently. But the reality is that Hamas had people in Lebanon. They talked to the Iranians. Palestinian groups and Lebanese groups have a lot of close connections and these people move around the region. And it shows the reach of Israel, the fact that if they see someone in Lebanon, then they can carry out a drone strike and eliminate them. They are not the only ones, of course. The US assassinated Hassan Soleimani, uh, Iranian Quds Force leader, IRGC leader in in uh, Iraq a couple of years ago. So Israel is not an exception in this. It definitely does show that this war is not confined to Gaza. There is, you know, violence also in the uh, occupied West Bank, the other part of the Palestinian territory. People in Israel have been displaced from their homes in the north and all also tens of thousands of people have been displaced from their homes on each side of the border in Israel and Lebanon because of the back and forth that was already going on prior to the Al-Aruri assassination between Hezbollah and Israel. A daily exchange of drones, rockets, artillery across the border between Israel and Lebanon. There's now talk about well whether Hezbollah in Lebanon would be willing to withdraw further away from the border into Lebanon because Israel wants more assurances and, and residents of northern Israel want more assurances that Hezbollah would not do something to the north of Israel like Hamas did to residents of the region bordering Gaza. Lizzie, thank you so much for that explanation and for talking us through that. Can we move back to Israel then? Um, recently, Benjamin Netanyahu suffered a Big setback. His attempt to limit judicial influence was struck down by the Israeli Supreme Court. Talk us through this story. What was the PM trying to do? How was it stopped? And what does this mean for him and for Israel? So it's, I guess it's not the PM so much himself, it's his coalition. We've got to remember that Benjamin Netanyahu is in power thanks to a coalition of parties and it particularly ultra-nationalist right-wing parties. And this Supreme Court ruling earlier this week was linked to a package of judicial reforms that was proposed by the Justice Minister and the head of the Knesset, the Israeli Parliament's Law and Constitution Committee, which essentially sought to shift the powers of the judiciary. This caused wide protests in Israel. Now, excuse me for the technical language here, but it was an amendment to one of Israel's basic laws, which sort of acts semi, they're quasi-constitutional. Israel doesn't have a constitution. It was an amendment that would essentially limit the power of the judiciary to review or reject any laws passed by the government. And the, the Supreme Court said this week said no, we're with a majority of eight to seven. So it was it was split. 
uh, it said we should not allow this, you know, because this limits our, our powers. So they were rejecting this limitation of the checks and balances, essentially. Now, I spoke to the Knesset member who actually put forward this judicial reform, who is uh, Simcha uh, Rothman. He is a member of a far-right party called the Religious Zionist Party. He said that this the Supreme Court shouldn't have done this right now because the only thing that we should be focusing on is the war and any legislation should be put on hold. And Supreme Court decisions, particularly ones that are divisive, he knows this is a divisive issue. They should be put on hold and this should not be an issue that is discussed at the moment because the only thing that Israel should be focusing on is the war. Lizzie, thanks so much for that. Looking ahead to this year, to 2024, what um, should we be aware of? Where do you see this conflict going in in Gaza and in Israel? Mm. It's it's going to last, I think. I mean, Israel has said that. They said we're in for the long haul. Israel is weighing up multiple factors. There is the war, absolutely, but there are things like the economy, which is struggling because so many reservists, so many people were called up to fight this war that there are just aren't many people uh, in in a lot of sectors. And we're talking about young professionals, so like young men and women who are working in the high-tech sector, whose loss because they're fighting is really impacting the economy. So actually, last week, Israel said that we are pulling out some reservists and they don't talk about numbers exactly, but we can say tens of thousands. We're pulling them out, giving them a rest, returning to their jobs. That's also coming as Israel comes under pressure to move on to another stage of the battle that involves less bombing of civilian areas. So, I mean, Netanyahu said 8,000 Hamas, but the health ministry in Gaza, which is is run by Hamas, says 22,000 people have been killed and puts most of them as women and children. And, And, you know, the pictures that I see, the people I speak to in Gaza, you know, there is reason to believe that the civilian death toll is is high. So Israel is coming under pressure from its allies, even the US, uh, for example, to move on to a a stage of this war that involves less bombing of densely populated areas. So we're going to see it continuing. At the same time, there's also this tension between, you know, continuing the war and trying to destroy Hamas uh, militarily while also getting hostages out. How do you keep fighting in an area where there are 130-something? The numbers keep changing, 129, 133, roughly Israeli hostages still being held by Hamas. And going in with military efforts into these areas means that these people are also in danger as well. And there is, you know, the families here and a lot of people in Israel are saying, that, hey, we need to make sure that these hostages get out and that would require a temporary ceasefire. So one thing that is going to be, you know, a continuous sort of talking point at the moment is, is there going to be another temporary ceasefire to allow more hostages to, to be released? How many Palestinians will be released from Israeli jails uh, in exchange for those hostages? And also to get more humanitarian aid in. People are in Gaza are really struggling, hunger, disease is rife because people are squeezed into very, very small areas without proper sanitation. So there's an ongoing humanitarian crisis, ongoing political pressures on Netanyahu, whether to, you know, go for a ceasefire and and get hostages out or to keep blasting forward on the military action to try and destroy everything that Hamas has in, in Gaza. And then also what happens to Gazans, uh, to Palestinians living in Gaza? These are all big questions that are going to keep being asked over the, the next um, weeks and months. Lizzie, is there anything else we haven't mentioned? I mean, we've covered a lot of ground there. I definitely think that there are a lot of efforts going on in the region to try and limit any further regional fallout from this. There is definitely diplomatic pressure on Lebanon to try and get Hezbollah to move away from the southern border because there is fear that if they don't, then a a greater war would be provoked. And Lebanon really, really cannot afford to have another war at the moment. It's uh, economically on its knees and it cannot cannot fight another war. Equally, Iran, uh, we saw a big explosion at a memorial event in Iran, which 
led to scores of deaths. It's unlikely, in my view, that that was Israel. It's not Israel's style. And there are other, you know, threats to Iran. There are Baluchi separatists and uh, Sunni extremist Islamists in that area that have carried out and claimed similar attacks. But that sort of attack shows that you know, there are multiple points of tension going on in the region as it is. And Iran also wouldn't want a wider war at the moment. It doesn't want to fight a more open war with Israel or, or the West at the moment, I think. So regional tensions are high. And I know you're going to talk about the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea as well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all-out war is going to open up on more fronts across the region. Lizzie Roberts there in Jerusalem. Let's leave Israel now and go south, but not too far. For weeks now, Houthi rebels in Yemen have been launching missile and drone strikes on shipping in the Red Sea, an important maritime corridor for international trade. Now, much merchant shipping avoids the area, while military vessels from multiple nations patrol the waters, shooting down Houthi projectiles. I spoke to our defence editor, Danielle Sheridan, to get an update on the situation and hear about what the next moves might be from the West. Danielle, you've been looking at this unfolding, developing story in the Red Sea. I think listeners will be aware of it. It's been in our news for, for weeks now, but could you just bring us up to date and explain what's happening? Yes, so the issue is that the Houthis have been attacking commercial vessels transiting the Red Sea. They've been using unmanned aerial vehicles, small boats, missiles, they've attempted hijackings. And of course, there was the use of anti-ship ballistic missiles against vessels. All of these are a direct threat to the freedom of navigation on what is one of the world's most critical routes. So that is why there is a huge amount of concern. It will cause massive disruption to the economy. We could see the price of everyday goods going up in supermarkets as the delivery of these are delayed, not to mention the potential devastating consequences if people are harmed in any way during these attempted attacks. The big news was this letter put out by 11 nations who are sort of present in in the Red Sea and aiming to stop these attacks. What did it say and why is this important? Yes, as you referenced, there was this letter issued by the UK, the US, Australia, Bahrain, numerous others. And they were basically warning the Houthis to stop. And if they don't, they say they will bear the responsibility of the consequences should they continue to threaten lives as well as the global economy. However, there was no meat to the bones of this letter. They didn't say, if you continue with this behaviour, we will send out X vessel, we will step up our responses in this specific way. It was more just kind of punchy language, threatening that they could increase their responses if the Houthis don't back down, however, didn't say in what way. So it was one of those letters that actually just left more questions than it did answers. But it did lead to Grant Schatz, the Defence Secretary, putting out his own kind of mini statement to supplement it. Uh, He tweeted out, the UK isn't going to hesitate taking necessary and proportionate action. However, read into that what you will, what can be deemed necessary and proportionate. And obviously the backdrop of this is everything that's going on in, in Gaza at the moment. Both Hamas and Houthis are backed by the Iranian regime. So So everything is sort of linked at this moment and there is a real kind of fear that this is all part of a a wider scheme to kind of pull the West in to create fighting more of a possibility, which is obviously something that's really trying to be contained by other nations at the moment. You spoke there about Grant Shapps' statement, but what exactly can the UK do, might the UK do in the next few days if if these provocations, if these attacks on on shipping continues? Sure. So we've already seen HMS Diamond go out to the region, but everyone's saying this isn't enough. And what the UK does have is two massive aircraft carriers that are currently sat in Portsmouth, not doing anything. As one naval source said to me, they are wrapped in cotton wool, waiting for the next voyage that will be perfectly quiet out to the Indo-Pacific or wherever, and everything will go smoothly. But the whole point of having these incredible pieces of kit is to be able to send them into an area in order to, to prevent escalation. It's really interesting because... When you talk about the aircraft carriers, you know, they they are absolutely ginormous. They're 
10 times the size of HMS Diamond, it would send a massive message. But is that necessarily a bad thing? And that's what people are asking. If you send an aircraft carrier into the region, then it's going to be escalatory. It's going to be really provocative. But actually, the flip side of that, just because something has the ability to be offensive doesn't actually mean that it will be. The US have sent aircraft carriers out there would it not make sense for us to do the same thing? It also means that when you have an aircraft carrier, they have fighter jets, they've got F-35s that can, you know, actually go out, do sorties, take down missiles. It can really achieve something that HMS Diamond simply isn't capable of doing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns on the same scale and that's what certain people are agitating to see happen hms diamond is defensive so she has no strike capability she's literally there to shoot down missiles that are fired at them they can't put anything ashore and as i said queen elizabeth for example is sixty-five thousand tons that's 10 times the size of hms diamond and she can be offensive so she can do strike options with f-35s they have their own headquarters it's just so much more than a single ship it's a task group and the carrier could go after houthis on the ground they would have special forces on board so I think I used this analogy earlier about why is the aircraft carrier being wrapped in cotton wool and, you know, being kept in Portsmouth. The point is that there is a sentiment, as I understand, shared within the MOD and the Navy, not everyone but some, that the carrier should have already gone out. We shouldn't be saving it. We shouldn't be putting it aside for the rainy day. You want to have the pieces in place so that if this does become more serious, you are in a position immediately to combat the incoming threat, as opposed to having a capability still sat here in the UK, and then having to send it out there. You want to put pieces into position in order to strike back. But I also see the argument of not wanting to cause an escalation. However, one might argue with attempted hijacking, it's already escalated. Well, thank you so much, Danielle, for bringing us up to date on all that. Just a bit of an addendum to this story. Danielle, you've written the front page for The Telegraph on Friday. It links into everything you've been talking about. Tell us about your story. Yes, so the story is that the Navy has so few sailors that it's having to scrap warships in order to man its new fleet of frigates. This is really disappointing news. I discovered that HMS Westminster, which was only recently refurbished at huge expense to the taxpayer and HMS Argyle are going to be decommissioned at some point this year. The crews from both those ships will then be spread out across the new Type 26 frigates, which are due to start coming on board by the end of the decade and then well into the mid-2030s. It's caused quite a bit of a storm, this story. What we are constantly seeing is depleting figures of personnel within the armed forces. We're always being told that there's not enough kit. We can't even give as much to Ukraine as we would like to because we don't have enough in the bank for our own protection. And this is just another example of how basically depleted the store cupboard is. We had the Defence Secretary saying that the UK is poised to intervene if needed, that it would engage in military action in this very volatile region. But 
playing devil's advocate, how on earth can that be done if if we are seeing that we don't even have enough sailors to, to man our own next generation of submarine hunting vessels? So Lord West, the former Sea Lord, was really interesting to speak to when I learnt that these two ships were going to be scrapped. And he was explaining that, you know, during the Falklands War in the 1980s, when the UK lost two destroyers and two frigates, a further 12 were damaged and it caused a great deal of aggravation for the Navy. But the Navy had a surface fleet that was much bigger. And we're saying that we would be interested in intervening in the Red Sea if required. Well, as Lord West is arguing... You know, with the number we've got, if we get involved in any action, then we're really poorly placed if, you know, a destroyer was sunk or or a frigate was damaged. We've got so few warships to be working with. Can we really afford to be putting them in harm's way? And I think that is what the crux of this story is about. It's one thing to be squeezing your defence in terms of personnel, in terms of kit... But it's another thing to be doing that at the same time as there being a war in Ukraine, war in the Middle East, and saying that we would be willing to intervene. Well, it begs the question, are we actually prepared to do that? And hearing that the Navy has so few sailors that it's having to scrap warships in order to just be able to put enough men on their their next generation frigates, well, I'll leave that up to the reader to come to their own conclusions, but it does paint a worrying picture. Danielle, Sharon, thank you so much. Thank you. On January the 13th, the polls open in Taiwan, an island nation in the East China Sea. The election is dominated by the question of Taiwan's political and constitutional relationship with its neighbour, the People's Republic of China, a global superpower that claims Taiwan as its own. To understand the elections and their potential impact on the region, I spoke to The Telegraph's Asia correspondent, Nicola Smith. Well, Nicola, thank you so much for your time. There's an election in Taiwan this January. Before we speak about the candidates, the stakes and the policies, could you just quickly sketch out the political scene on the island and tell us something about the electoral process there? Sure. Well, Taiwan is a democracy of some 23.5 million people. And on January 13th, we're going to see presidential and legislative polls. Taiwan is a relatively young democracy. It only had its first ever presidential election in 1996. And it's since evolved to become a very open and vibrant society. It has a freewheeling press. It has open internet. People enjoy their democratic rights. Uh, and recently, in the past few years, it introduced same-sex marriage, so it's quite liberal-leaning. And it's the exact opposite of authoritarian China, which claims Taiwan as its own territory, even though the Chinese Communist Party has never ruled there. And I think at this point, it's important to give just a very brief historical overview as to why this is a controversial point, because Taiwan, it was first home to indigenous peoples, then the Dutch and Spanish colonised it, it was then ruled for some 200 years, parts of it were ruled by the Qing dynasty, before Japan took over in 1895 and colonised Taiwan, and that lasted until the end of World War II. And then by the late 1940s, you had a raging civil war in China between Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang nationalist forces and the communists, and Chiang Kai-shek was losing, so he retreated and fled to Taiwan with some 2 million troops and refugees, and he set up his Republic of China government there. So at one point, His plan was to retake China from this base in Taiwan. So at one point you had two different governments for China. And initially the international community recognised Chiang Kai-shek's ROC government as a bulwark against communism, but that shifted by the 1970s and that recognition went to Beijing. Now, only 13 countries formally and diplomatically recognise Taiwan, but it functions as any other country with its own elections, its own government, its own military, its own foreign policy. And so coming back to this election and why democracy is so important to Taiwan, when Chiang Kai-shek went there, he imposed martial law from 1949 
1987. And this this was a, a period known as the White Terror, where over 100,000 people were imprisoned, some three to 4,000 people were executed just for opposing Chiang Kai-shek's rule. And so Taiwan fought very hard for the democracy that it has now. This was introduced in the 1990s, and since then it's really evolved into this very vibrant democracy. Since that was introduced, there have been two main parties who have been battling it out over who rules Taiwan, and that's the Kuomintang KMT party, which is more conservative, and the Democratic Progressive Party, who are more centre-left, more liberal, and they're currently in power. They've been ruling there for two terms since 2016, being led by President Tsai Ing-wen, and she can't stand again because there's a two-term limit. And so in this election, you also have a third party in the mix, and that's run by Ko Wen-je. He formed the centrist Taiwan People's Party, and he's very popular with, with the younger generation and people who want to put forward some kind of protest vote. So that's what we have coming up on the 13th of January, where 19 million people are eligible to vote in this very consequential election that will shape cross-strait policies and also the relationship between the US and China. Well, Nicola, thank you so much for that overview and that history lesson. It's much needed, I think. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit more about this election. You've given us the names of the parties. What's on the ballot paper then? What are the issues, the policies that they're, they're, they're fighting over? So uh, the the cross-strait relationship, uh, Taiwan's relationship with China is, is obviously very a very high priority issue in this election. You have three candidates. You have Lai Ching-te, William Lai, who is with the incumbent party with the DPP, and he's currently the vice president. He's from a quite a modest background, but he also studied in, in Harvard. He became a doctor and a, the mayor of a large city in Taiwan. China and the KMT accuse him of being a dangerous supporter of independence, which is something that he strongly denies. He portrays himself as the continuity candidate that he wants to follow on from President Tsai and keep the status quo and, and, and try and keep things stable across the Taiwan Strait. His vice presidential candidate is Bi Kim Shao, who is the former de facto ambassador to the United States. And that's been seen as a sign that he wants to reassure the United States that he's not going to take Taiwan in a radical pro-independence direction. He wants friendly relations with Beijing. He wants to sit down for dinner with Xi Jinping. But he also believes that Taiwan is already a sovereign, independent country without needing to declare formal independence. And there is a sticking point in that relationship where he has rejected something called the 1992 consensus. And we don't want to get too much into the weeds on this, but it's basically an unofficial understanding between the KMT and China that there is only one China, although the two sides may differ as to what that means. And because he's rejected this and his party has rejected this, then relations have been frozen between the DPP and China since 2016. So this brings us to the second candidate, who is KMT um, Hao Yoyi, and he is a former police officer and former police chief. He does accept the 1992 consensus as the basis of relationship with China and wants to use this to open dialogue and strengthen economic ties. And his party rejects the notion of Taiwanese independence, but they also strongly deny being pro-Beijing, which is what the opposition have accused them of. And the big question really is if he wins, whether he'll be able to enact that policy of having stronger economic ties and that relationship, that dialogue with China without coming under a lot of pressure to compromise Taiwan's autonomy and, and sovereignty. And then the third candidate, we have Ko Wen-je, who has formed this third party. He's a bit of a wild card, a bit of a maverick politician. He's a former surgeon. And as I said, he's very popular with kind of young college educated people who are worried about jobs and high housing prices. And he's kind of put himself forward, pushing for these bread and butter issues. He also wants to start dialogue with, with Beijing. But I should say that all of them, despite Taiwan being this potential geopolitical flashpoint, all of them are quite inexperienced when it comes to foreign policy. 
Leitinger has a bit more, but as vice president, he hasn't really been on the international stage so much. And all of them would say that Taiwan, the Taiwanese people should be the ones to decide their own future. All of them are against this one country, two state system that Beijing is proposing. They've seen what's happened in Hong Kong, and it's very unpopular with the public. So just how important is this? I don't know what the right word to describe it. Is it how important is the Chinese threat, the Chinese presence and its own sort of foreign policy goals? How important is that in this election? Is it the overriding concern of all the candidates and the voters? Or does it sit somewhere within a, a larger sort of mix of policies and, and drives? I would say that it really dominates the election debates. There are, of course, many other issues that are debated. Each candidate has his own domestic policies that would relate to things that are very pertinent to the Taiwanese public, especially young people, like I said, housing prices, stagnant wages. But a lot of the debates, and especially now, are really quite dominated by who's the best candidate to keep this relationship with China stable. And this is not new to this election. Even though Taiwan is this dynamic polar opposite to China's authoritarian police state, it's always been kind of overshadowed by the geopolitical implications of who the next leader is going to be. And, you know, looking at 1996 with the first presidential election, China was launching missiles into the Taiwan Strait, you know, as a message not to vote for a particular candidate who was introducing democracy. And, and that has not really shifted. And so you you have this building pressure from China, which has been building up over the past couple of years of military intimidation and pressure. You see Chinese fighter aircraft who are on a near daily basis coming very close to Taiwan's air defense identification zone, which is the, the, the buffer zone before territorial airspace. This has been seen as a, an act of intimidation. You've also seen economic coercion just in the, in the past few days. China has cut trade tariffs on petrochemical imports from Taiwan. And there's also been a flurry of disinformation on the internet as well that experts believe is trying to push the, the public in a particular direction. And, you know, it has to be said, though, that that has backfired in the past. In 2020, it looked for a few months before the election that Tsai Ing-wen was going to have a hard time to win. And then the Hong Kong protests happened. Uh, and there was this, you know, very aggressive crackdown on protesters. And that really motivated young Taiwanese people to get out and vote. And many of them voted for the DPP, 75% turnout in that particular election. And so in the current election, that has not changed. You, you have the KMT and China who are trying to portray this election as a choice between war and peace. And that's uh, an assertion that the DPP rejects and it criticises the KMT for parroting Beijing's line. And it would rather say that it is a choice between a democracy and autocracy, and that it's the Chinese Communist Party and not the DPP who are the threat. You've touched on the, the sort of geopolitical implications of this election a few times. Let's go, let's go more into that. How important is this election for global geopolitics? What can you see being the fallout? Well, first of all, if the DPP are re-elected, this will seen as representing the entrenchment of, of China scepticism among the Taiwanese public. Over 90% of Taiwanese public identifies Taiwanese. And this could be a potential tipping point for the relationship between Taiwan and China. China is very unlikely to try to pursue dialogue with Lai Chinta or the DPP. They haven't since 2016, and that's unlikely to change. On the other hand, if Hao Yui or Ko Wenzhi where to win, there might be attempts by Beijing to push Taiwan more towards a peaceful unification. And all of these scenarios have a potential regional and global impact. I mean, the most immediate impact would be on Taiwan. You've seen Chinese military experts come out recently saying that if Lai wins, that this will raise the risk of conflicts in, in the Taiwan Strait. You would likely see a more hawkish approach, like more incursions on the air defence zone, more economic coercion against Taiwan, Taiwanese companies. But it would also test this very new, unstable detente between 
the United States and China. In November, we saw President Xi meet with President Biden and they were trying to put their relationship back on track after many tensions between them. And and that's still very nascent and still very unstable. And Taiwan is at the centre of that relationship. So this, this will be a test of that. But if you look long term, whether there is conflict, whether there's a blockade of Taiwan, or even if China manages to peacefully annex Taiwan, that will have implications for the entire world. If you look, first of all, economically, Taiwan is the world's 16th largest trading economy, exchanging over 900 billion in goods and services in 2022. It produces 90% of the world's advanced semiconductor chips, which are vital for many industries and not least the artificial intelligence boom. There have been some estimates that even a blockade could put some $2 billion in economic activity at risk. James Cleverley, the former foreign secretary, said that a conflict would collapse the Chinese economy and other economies, that it would be catastrophically bad for the global economy. And then if you look at it from a strategic military point of view, Taiwan is sitting in the, the midway point of what's called the First Island Chain, which runs from Russia's Kuril Islands down to the Malay Peninsula. And if China manages to annex Taiwan, that would give it access to the Pacific. It would give it the opportunity to project its naval power into the Pacific, to exert more control over the South China Sea and all of the, the trade and shipping routes that are there. It would give it a much more advantageous position and allow its submarines access also from the Taiwanese coastline into the Pacific. So really, Taiwan's future is very consequential for the future of the entire world. Back to the elections. Do we have any predictions? How close is it at the moment? It is a close, closely run election. There is a blackout in the polls until January 13th. The latest polls showed that quite consistently that Lai Qingde was in the lead, but that his lead was in some polls only by a few points. So it's certainly not in the bag for him. And there was a TVBS poll on Monday that showed he was at 33%, but that Hao Yoyi was at 30% and Ko and Jo was at 22%. But there was another poll on Saturday that gave him a 10-point lead. And so now that we have this blackout, we don't really have any way of knowing who's going to be in the lead in the run-up to the election. It could have been very different if the two opposition candidates had joined forces, which was part of their plan a couple of months ago, but that all fell apart over a disagreement about who would be vice president and who would be president. So at the moment, it looks like Lighting to will win, but it's very uncertain and too close to call. And you also have the legislative elections, which don't get as much attention because it's really the president who is setting the tone with China. So there's a lot more focus on who wins the presidential election. But the latest polls show that uh, currently the DPP has a majority in the, the legislature, but the current polls show that no party will have 50%. And so whoever is president will have to then work with other parties to push through their policies. Nicola, is there anything we haven't spoken about or mentioned that you think is important? I, mean, I, I think often we um, we focus so much on the China-Taiwan relationship when it comes to elections. And this is obviously very, very important. But I think it's always good to, to emphasise that Taiwan is just like any other country. People are very much preoccupied with the economy, the birth rate, Taiwan's heading towards a demographic crisis, and people are very concerned about that, about you know what's going to happen with the healthcare system, with the job market, with the military. I think really it's always good to remember that, you know, the Taiwanese are just like all of us. They just want to be able to raise their children in a peaceful society. They just want to keep their economic and democratic freedoms. And it's very often framed as, you know, a question of will Taiwan provoke China into action? And I think very often we look at it in the wrong way. You know, if, if pursuing peace, autonomy and democracy is provocation, then what kind of world are we living in? 
Well, that certainly reminds us of a, a certain war in Europe, I think, the way you've described it there, and the way I think international people look, looked at it, certainly looked at it, I don't know about it anymore. Well, Nicholas Smith, thank you so much for your time. Let's definitely catch up again, I think, after January the 13th, and you can give us your, your view on the results, what that might mean, and what happens next. That would be great. Thanks very much for having me on. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. Or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.